Well, welcome to the Bread Chair. Today we have a very special guest here, uh, Vasco from uh, Enbevel, uh, founder and CEO. We've known each other for, for many years. It's one of our portfolio companies. It used to be a portfolio company at Kaisha, now it's again a portfolio company at Indico. So welcome, Vasco. Thank you. Good Thank you, Stefan. And, and you're right, I mean, it's been 10 years. I think you were one of the first people to believe in Enbevel and to kind of uh, invest. Uh, it's been, yeah. You've always been a big supporter of the Lisbon ecosystem in general and, and Bauer. Still a big believer. Uh, I know you're doing amazing stuff. And that's why we're here. We'd love to know your story. How did it all start? Okay, well, uh, AI was always a big part of my life. Um, the idea of consciousness, sci-fi, and I like, love reading, love imagining uh, new worlds. And then in hindsight, I can see how language was always a big part because uh, my mother is not retired, but she was a professor of English, English linguistics. And so language and the idea of understanding uh, consciousness through language ended up being uh, the way that I was thinking about stuff. I think uh, uh, I started uh, my first kind of foray into uh, pseudo-entrepreneurial uh, stuff was, uh, I remember when I was six, me and my sister used to sell door-to-door -door the Christmas cards. You know, very entrepreneurial. Yeah, like to sell, to like we'd make our own little cards. In Portugal. Oh yeah, yeah. Listen, that's very yeah, entrepreneurial. Yeah. Right? We go knock and like you know we'd like spend a week making cards and you know make some money for you know Christmas gifts and it's funny like I only realized I only thought of this as entrepreneurial recently before it was just something we did you know um, I I worked jobs during uh, high school I worked in the meat factory when I was fourteen. The meat uh, factory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't know. <laughs> For a month, you know, summer vacation, I was like, yeah. So I literally got to see how the sausage was made, you know. <laughs> That's not a pretty sad. <laughs> <No. laughs> Let's just say that ever since then, I've never ate lard again. It was, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I always like doing things and I've always also liked building. Uh, like I've felt, uh, I always consider myself a builder at heart uh, from making uh, constructions of things or building different physical things was always something that, that drive me. Um, and so I think when I combine this thing, I, I think if, you know, like I started coding when I was six, uh, 48K Spectrum, you know, would spend weekends uh, mm -hmm. trying to, uh, there would be the, the games that would publish in the newspaper and uh, you'd code the games and then yeah, obviously you run it through a cassette and then you find out there's a bug and you know, you have to go back, you know, it's start again. Start, yeah, it was, it was, it was, like, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. And so I, uh, you know, like starting to code was important. Starting to feel the creative power of coding was, was, was something that really drove me. And so I knew fairly early on that computer science or computers was something that I was really, uh, uh, keen on. Actually, uh, I, I went to uh, a military boarding school from 10 to 15. Uh, oh, yeah, Fields. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and it was, in many ways, it obviously was very formative years of my experience. Um, and I, I feel a bit of a cognitive dissonance, I think, because on one hand, I I, I gained a very um, strong aversion to discipline. On the other hand, I really like it. You know? <laughs> and so maybe I became unmanageable after that. <laughs> maybe but maybe it's useful when you have to move from being a pirate to being the Navy, right? Yes. In this analogy. Yes, very much so. Very much so. I, I think so. I think I, even for example, um, yesterday I gave a, a we, we're, we have the H2KO, so an RKO happening right now. Uh, it's, it's wrapping up today in Lisbon. So we have like 90, people in the revenue team here and yesterday there was a big dinner at Stufa Fria and I was giving this speech and, and I've been thinking a lot about values and values on Babel and who we are and how do we want to uh, behave and 
And I found that I've been kind of in, in a weird way, like the, the values that you believe end up coming out in, uh, in, in many ways. It's, it's not just in your companies. They actually get expressed throughout your entire life as their real values. And one of the values that we're, we're coming back to over and over, this idea of camaraderie and camaraderie in the sense of, you know, taking care of the person that you're in a team with, right? Of your teammate, of, you know, obviously within brothers, within friends, the, the people that you're going through this hard journey or this difficult thing, you have their back, they have your back, right? And this is something that has been present in Babel from the beginning. But I, I think it took me a long time to accept camaraderie as a value because it was a value at Philips, right? And I think I, I did a version of like, no, like, is, but it is ingrained. It is something that I believe in. Uh, and but you've always had a very inclusive culture in Babel and a very, you know, a spirit of cooperation and actually having people express themselves and you go surfing. Uh, once a week or a year yeah. at least, right? Yes. Uh, and, and people were always very close, which is always, I mean, it's still a company, right? You still have to sort of perform yes. at the highest level. And there's ups and downs, of course, and there's sometimes some people have to go. But, but that's, that, that's been a big part of the Babel. And I, the way we're more and more define our culture, do you remember the, the culture deck of Netflix? They came out with the culture deck uh, a while ago, and they really cemented this idea of a professional sports team in a startup, right? And it became a bit of a fashion, like, yes, we're, we're that. I, I always felt a bit hesitant because I don't think that's exactly us. I think we, it's very important to be high performant, but the idea that, you know, like, you're, you're, it's just a job, that's it, you're just playing, and if you don't score, you're out of the team, period. It's not exactly us. I, I see us more as explorers, you know? We're on this mission to get to a place that's never been before, to Antarctica, you know? And if you're doing that, you know, you need to do it with people that are really good at what they do, but you also need a cohesion of the team to be able to get there, right? It's, it's not just a job. There's this, recently there's this documentary of the 14 Peaks, it's uh, an amazing documentary, right? And they're 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 showing the difference between doing this as a team or doing this with people that are really good. They're not cohesive, right? That cohesion is, I I believe, what enables you to overcome obstacles that might seem impossible. And so, for us, uh, you know, surfing, as you mentioned, uh, happened to be an activity that we were doing when we started the company. We are terrible at it, to be honest. Like we were <laughs> discussing, I mean, you know, you are way better surfing than you know. I don't know. I don't know if any at a level, but certainly me and the founders for sure. Like our instructors say, we're more like soul surfers, you know, we're like... That's what it matters, you know, it's, yes. all, it's all the soul, right? But it was about like having that time that you spend with people that you're, you know, that you work and create memories and, and being able to have conversations beyond work, right? Because um, uh, especially in the beginning, but still very much so, a, a startup is not exactly a, a, a company, just a company. You know, there's, there's more, it's more intense, there's more emotion, there's more risk. Uh, you need to believe in the mission and the people you're doing with. And there's ends up, uh, it, it, like I, I used to have this idea of, of paying off the emotional debt was something I used to talk about a lot, where this idea that with any high emotional situation, you tend to accumulate emotional debt. So, you know, the example I used to think of is when you have your first kid as a couple and, and suddenly, you know, you have a lot of time to communicate before and suddenly for a while, there's this being that requires all your attention and you just focus on that, right? And so it's easy to stop communicating and to, have the little things that you don't actually sort, sort through and then you know come christmas time you're trying to decide which family you're going to spend christmas with and suddenly you're discussing when well, you didn't change the diaper you know four months ago and it's, it was kind of that that concept right of like how do we make sure that we have the time to work through the small things so that when the big decisions come we're actually very aligned and that's been a very important part of the culture of the battle i think uh and even before in battle it's been something that i see as a as a recurring topic in my life and the way I relate to people is 
is it's life is short and it's I think it's important to do things that are worth doing you know solving hard problems I am at my best when I'm building things but I also very much enjoy it's important the people I do it with right and so if you're doing something interesting with people that you hate or that you don't particularly care about it's not going to work you know you're yeah. going to yeah. and so that's that that's always been important I think so I did my undergrad in Lisbon, uh, uh, a degree that no longer exists. Actually, it's called uh, Knowledge and Language Engineering, and it was in in the uh, in the School of Science and the School of Humanities. And it was uh, Artificial Intelligence in Faculdade Ciências and Computational Linguistics in Faculdade Letras. Uh, and so it was a innovative. It was actually a few of the technical professors plus uh, a couple of professors of Faculdade Ciências that had decided to create this uh, natural language processing focused uh, kind of degree. Um, and so I did that and then uh, worked for a couple of years uh, and then went to the U.S. and did my master's and PhD there. When, when was it smallest? So uh, I graduated in 98 and then uh, I went to the U.S. in 2001. So, yeah. We were there more or less at the same time. We yeah. Studying different things. Right? I was doing my MBA. Oh, okay. When were you, in, you were at Harvard, right? Yeah, 2000 to 2002. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I went in 2001 thinking, so I went with a Fulbright scholarship and it was supposed to be a two-year thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to go for two years. And then that turned into 10 years and kids and company and life. Life happened right, while, while, while you're making plans. Um, and and then, then how do you then and Babel came to be? So uh, and Babel, uh, so I, I was in the US for a while, started a company, then at some point moved to Portugal. And the idea was to, so in 2011, I moved to Portugal. I felt that I really wanted to come back. It was important for me to, you know, I had gone for a couple of years. Like I said, life had happened. I didn't want it to be random. I, I wanted to come back. The kids, uh, my oldest was seven at the time. There was a number of things that were like, I need to go back to Portugal, spend a few years. And then if I go back to the US, it would be on purpose. And when I did, I met Joao, my co-founder and CTO. He had uh, finished his PhD in machine translation. We had a common friend that introduced us. Uh, and we hit it off like in many ways. So like common passion, common way of looking at things, very aligned on what we wanted to do. Even things like uh, same anime TV shows that we liked, random stupid things, you know. But we started talking about uh, doing things together. Uh, he had gotten this amazing uh, Marie Curie grant as a, as a professor and I said, don't do that. Come and join me doing a startup. So we worked together in a couple of companies. And then every time we kept talking about like applications of NLP and we were seeing the field go and where were the, 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 the opportunities. And then we started uh, thinking about translation and how the evolution of machine translation and this idea of the hybrid model and the impact that we think it could have. And so 2013, we decided uh, to go for it, uh, us and, uh, and the rest of the founders. Um, and initially, it was just about like, let's get a prototype together. Does it even work? Can we even make this happen? And then we applied to Y Combinator, ended up getting in. It was like big roller coaster. Yeah, it was probably yeah. the first Portuguese company ever in Y Combinator, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, at the time. And it was, when you were there, we were like, oh, there's a Portuguese company in Y Combinator. Let's invest. Yes. Yeah. And it was right, yeah, right at the time that you guys uh, invested still in Caixa Capital. And that's right. And it was, and I remember when we raised the, the round post YC was like 1.5 million and we thought, that's it, we, we're never going to need to raise again, we're done. This is awesome. <laughs> How ridiculous does <laughs> that sound now? It's very much so. <laughs> but if we really thought it, we're like, you know, back of the manual calculations, like, well, you know, in two years we're going to be processing 2 billion words and so like, <laughs> we're now at 3.5 billion. So, that's uh, incredible. But you still need capital. <laughs> and we still need capital, yes. Because it turns out 3.5 billion, it's still scratching the surface, right? Because that's it's right. such a huge problem. That, I think that's one interesting thing 
we start. I wonder how many other people that created really amazing things. You know, if you go Airbnb, Google, if they really understood the magnitude of the problem when they started. Because certainly, I feel that in, we're able to much better describe it now. And we kind of knew that there was something important. But as you go and you start seeing, wait, but we we're already here, three point five billion, and we're still in such small part of the market. Just a little slither. Right, and so you're like. Wow, it means that the market is really huge, and you kind of rationally know it from the beginning. You know, you look at numbers like, oh, it's twenty-five billion dollar market, but I don't think that you feel that you really know that until you get to a point where that becomes, you know, that becomes more accessible. I mean, we're we're in Europe and the U.S. We're very we have and very. What kind of clients do you have? What are you addressing at this stage? So, in the meeting, towards saying, what does a Babel do? It's <laughs> AI and language translation, right? So, it, essentially, it's a very basic problem. So, people speak different languages. Uh, that's never going to change. Uh, you know, we, we're fortunately communicating using a language that is a bit more international right now. But actually, surprisingly, only 25% of the world speaks English. Right? And so, companies grow, and more and more, they're expected to enter new markets. And when they do, they face this problem. My customers don't speak my language. So, now I need to market and sell and provide customer support in an entire new language. I need to run my organization in a bunch of languages. And it's really, really painful right now to do it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why companies wait a long time to do it. Uh, when they do it, they do it in fewer languages than they could. It's, 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 it's a pain in the ass to, to manage, to scale. And so what we've done is we've started by creating a platform that combines a lot of different components of AI, so machine translation, and a bunch of other things with human translation. So it's a much better, faster, much more scalable way to translate. And then we've built a platform on top of that that enables companies to tackle a lot of their language problems in a much easier way. So when we started, the first three, four years were really about building out the infrastructure and you know proving that this worked. Then for three or four years, we were really focused on customer service. So we thought, okay, let's start by enabling customer service agents to handle any language. And so we integrate into Salesforce and Zendesk and other CRMs and if uh, you know and, and still text or so email chat. Uh, and if an agent is getting an email in Chinese, by the time they get it's in English and when they reply, the user gets it in Chinese. And all this in seconds. Or yeah, depending. So chat is instantaneous, uh, you know, sub one second. Uh, and then email might take between you know a minute and five minutes. But for email it's fine, right? And so uh, so we started proving this out. But it really wasn't done until we started the idea of using translation to enable multilingual customer support. Now it's becoming, okay, people are seeing that the advantages are huge. Has to be done, right? Yes. Someone has to do it yes. and you are doing it. Yes. What and kind so, of clients do you have that you can share? Uh, so uh, we have clients in travel and commerce, tech, uh, the main verticals, gaming, uh, fintech. Uh, you know, we have uh, clients from ranging from um, Booking to Microsoft to Logitech to Facebook to, um, well, most of the most well-known brands at this point are using Invalo. You know, from a little pizza oven delivery uni that are growing like crazy to SumUp to, you know, uh, Zalando's and a bunch of other companies. Uh, some of them are still, compared to the entire potential, they're still, you know, starting. They're starting to experiment with languages. They're starting to change their process. But now, since last year, we actually started to expand into other use cases. So, uh, customer service acquisition, right? Yes, exactly. So we we acquired our first company in December, uh, and that is rapidly uh, enabling us to expand to all the use cases inside our organization. So beyond customer service, uh, but marketing, sales, uh, shared services, and HR, 
uh, it's, it's quite exciting. The platform is evolving, it's maturing. Uh, we're starting to uh, enable the platform to become self-service, so that's going to come soon. Uh, so we can actually start taking companies and helping them earlier and taking them through this journey where they are starting to do with languages. Uh, it's a very exciting time for Unbound. So we're now about 350 people. Uh, we have offices in eight countries or eight offices somewhere in Lisbon. Uh, so we, we, I know the whole world went remote. We've, our DNA is not remote, so we're never going to be remote first, truly. And I think it's starting to be time to, you know, to define what you want to be because you need people to, to self-select, right? And so we have a hybrid model. Um, it's important for us to have physical spaces that people come together, they can uh, get energy from the collaboration. And uh, our hubs right now are Lisbon, London, Berlin, uh, Edinburgh, uh, Timisoara in Romania, Cebu in the Philippines, and then New York, San Francisco, and Pittsburgh. Uh, That's yeah. quite a bit. It's quite it's a bit. Quite a bit. Quite, yes. quite a big ship. Uh, yes. Tell me sort of some of the lessons learned over these last 10 years. So you were a very small company when we first invested. You're now a fairly large organization, I mean, medium-sized organization with a lot of complexity. Uh, we talked already about this thing of this concept of moving from a pirate ship into becoming a small navy, at least, or a medium-sized navy. What are the big lessons learned? So uh, th there's a lot of them. There's a lot of lessons on, the, you know, like uh, the, the things that you see after the fact. I think for me as a, as a journey, as a founder, even the journey from founder to CEO has been, um, you know, it's, it, I'm still very much in the learning phase. But I can see already a lot of the learnings that happen. So uh, ever since Series A, since there Series A, I've been having coaching. I have the, the the I'm fortunate to be able to have access to great coaches, and uh, and that certainly speeds up. Uh, and one of the things that for, for me is the is maybe the hardest is this concept of top leveling. You know, like how do you you start with a group of people like most startups that are you know really focused, dedicated, hardworking young, typically without a lot of experience, right? And and then you get, as you were mentioning, this idea of Pirates to Navy is, you know, in the beginning, it's like, let's just figure this out, right? And people have a lot of initiative. And then you hit on something that kind of works and you need to scale that, right? And the scalability requires process and requires, but it's also an art, right? If you put process too early, too fast, you're stifling innovation. If you wait too long, you're inviting chaos. And a lot of times you need to bring in people that have really done it, right? That are really experts in this area. And this is also hard because uh, my coach says, you know, like founder CEOs tend to do this way too long because there's a lot of loyalty to the people that- Too late. Yes, they wait too long to top level, right? Because uh, obviously you have strong connection with the people that are doing this with you and you believe in- That they can get there. Yeah, we'll just grow together, right? But the- And at some stage you have to bring in it's, it, if the company is around you, if the people around you on average are growing as fast as the company, it means the company is not growing fast enough, right? So the, typically a successful high growth company will grow faster than the vast majority of people can grow with it. And yeah. and that's fine, right? And I think you need to uh, be really good at recognizing when someone is reaching the current peak. You know, people, I think, growing S-curves, they, they go through something and then they grow really fast and then they take a while plateau. to absorb that and plateau for a while and then absorb and immerse themselves into some problem before they get another growth spurt, right? This idea of growth spurts. If they can't, right? But even that S-curve, sometimes you 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 can't afford that, right? So yeah. you need to 
continuously be looking on how do I bring the right leader to the right area. I mean, delegating is another very important aspect as a founder. Going from a founder to CEO, you need to, to, to stop micromanaging. You go from a time where you know all the aspects of your business to then having to have people that are essentially better than you. I mean, like my all my leadership team, they're better at what they do than I am. Yeah. You know, like there, it means that as a founder, you go through a phase where it's like, what's my role anymore? Like, what am I supposed to be doing if I'm not the expert in a particular thing, right? And then you realize that, yeah, I mean, like as, as a CEO, like setting the vision, hiring the people, inspiring, you know, sometimes making tough decisions on, on, on a small amount of data. Those are all very important things of being immersed in where you want, where you want to go. But then the execution of each area, you're most of the times a bottleneck. You're not the right person to dictate that. How, how is it, you know, when you have such a strong culture and such a close proximity between uh, people, uh, how is it to take tough decisions? One, it's it's not easy in general, and it's not easy because I, I, you know I am not someone that thrives on confrontation. Some people really like it, right? Like they like to fight. I like to build, right? And so confrontation is something that requires me to mentally prepare for and drains me. And so uh, it, it, what I, I noticed that inevitably, inevitably, I tend to like postpone tough decisions where I used to. And that was a learning process of like recognizing when I'm doing that and, and breaking that cycle. Uh, yeah. Now I have much better ways of dealing with it. Uh, I think one thing that it helped uh, for us and for me, one is surround yourself with people that are really good at also demanding from you that you take the decision you need to take. Uh, uh, like, you in a, in a like sense. for example, my chief of staff, you know, like that, creating that relationship where I know she is sometimes tough on me, but that's good because it forces you to recognize having a coach, all of that, you know, like forces you to be objective. Uh, sometimes getting yourself out of the fray, you know, like taking some time to, because it's easy when you're very operational, you're just in the middle of it. If you step out sometimes, and that's one, one advantage of having different offices sometimes. Just by going to a different office, you kind of get yourself from the day to day and you see it a bit more holistically. But but I think more importantly is the more you define the value. So what I notice is our biggest value is being mission driven. And so which means that the camaraderie should not jeopardize the mission. Right. So it's camaraderie is very important, but not at the cost of the mission. Ultimately, the most important thing is to get to where we need to get to. That's what we all signed up for. Right. And so whenever when, when I look from this perspective uh, then you can you can evaluate the decision you need to make on hey this is a goal right this is going to jeopardize where we need to go okay. and we've done a lot of tough decisions in the past uh, that weren't pleasant and they were really hard to do but once you realize okay this is because you know this is what we need to do to execute on the mission then you know it's it it becomes easier to just execute and that's the other thing I noticed in terms of the actual mechanism of the decision. It's actually the hard part for me is the initial snowball. So it's like once you've stated that decision, then it's then, you know, and if I'm comfortable with the decision I'm making, just saying it out loud then makes it easier. Like, so, you know, like there's always decisions small and big that not everybody agrees with, right? Yeah. So you need to be able to do that. You need to be able to have a degree and disagree with commit attitude of the team. Uh, which fortunately we do, uh, and then uh, and then you need to be okay with the consequences for sure. Yeah. It's really interesting that you're talking about um, you know coaching because that's one thing that sometimes we find in sort of younger stage 
companies that the, the founders are kind of afraid of doing coaching because they think that they might be questioned. But that's precisely the purpose of yeah. coaching, right? And so it's I think it's very brave that you've done that for many years and, and that you've incorporated that into your thought process. And the, my current coaching practice practice is 10x CEO. So they only it's based in San Francisco. You have to be uh, referred by your uh, investors, and they only take typically companies Series B and above. So our company right now is in my group is the smallest. So from 15, no, about 30 to 200 million of ARR, right? And you have a mix. So you not only have a coach that, that was the big difference is a coach that actually was a CEO, was a CMO, that actually right. was an operator, you know, right? So it goes, so that, that was important, but also having a, a team of people that they're all CEOs in your group that are peers, right? And right. it's very interesting because, um, and it's a mix of founder CEOs and professional CEOs. Uh, and what I notice is it's one or two of them have multiple coaches, actually, not just one, but two, especially the $200 million company. They really so rely on yes, yeah, to get different, to like to focus on different things because the the pressure to continue to grow a business that is at two hundred million at fifty hundred percent a year, uh, you know, you need to continuously improve on yourself. You need to always be working on getting better. For sure, for sure. A couple of last questions. Um, you you have lots of different investors, early stage investors and and, and later stage investors. What is the what are the lessons learned also in terms of the types of investors that you've had? What are the best practices or the things that you think people should know, particularly younger founders or that are in early stages in terms of how to choose your, your VC? The most important thing in my perspective is the actual person. So, you know, I'm not naive to think that brand has no impact. You know, uh, obviously there's funds everyone has heard about, you know, Sequoias, etc. Uh, and they do provide benefit in terms of uh, visit, perception of customers. Uh, but in reality, the most important thing is is not the fund, is the person, is the actual partner that you're going to be working with, especially if they're going to be part of your board. Because if you have a high-functioning board, that is an incredible asset to the company. And if you have a dysfunctional board, it's an incredible deterrence, right? It's a, an anchor. And I've seen, well, fortunately, not at Babel, we've always had a great board. But I've seen many other companies where that isn't the case and it's it's a mess, right? So that's number one uh, advice is you're going to be working with this person for four or five years. So make sure it's someone you like, you know, and someone that likes you and someone that shares your beliefs and someone that shares your vision. And the more that happens, the better, right? Because no company or very rarely companies are always up and to the right, right? So there's going to be ups and downs and you need someone that understands that, that believes in what you're doing and is not going to be looking to, you know, change at the first sign. Right? The other is you also, that's something I've learned more recently. You need to provide leadership to your board. So uh, in the absence of leadership, uh, your board will take over and typically one of the one of the partners. Now, most the vast majority of, of uh, VCs that I've met, they're well-intentioned. They want the best for their deals. If they're investing, they want it to be good, right? And so. Ideally, they want a CEO that provides leadership and provides vision. And, and when, if they're seeing, hey, look, the ship is not being, like no one's at the helm, someone needs to step, step in, then they will feel you know, that they have to because that's, that's their duty as, as, as board members and shareholders, right? So the managing of the board is something that uh, maybe early on is less of a thing because it's a bit more informal, but as the company becomes bigger, you need to kind of uh, to work on that part. And it's something that there's no school of how to manage your board, right? So you need to learn that. I think uh, also early on, um, 
there's different kinds of uh, VCs. There's there's VCs that have uh, been operators, that have been founders, that have companies, there are others that haven't, they're more financial. They all can provide value, but it's important to have a bit of a mix, right? If you I mean, only have financial VCs, uh, you're gonna have a skewed view of what you should be going after. And, and your board is important to also challenge you as a CEO, right? I mean, it's very easy to become complacent. Uh, and, and, and this, I think, is, is pretty important for Portugal. So, you know, even though conceptually and rationally we understand we live in a global society, it's very easy if you stay here uh, to, you know, the comfort breeds uh, familiarity and that breeds uh, settling. You know, it's like it's important to be comfortable with discomfort and to look for opportunities to be uncomfortable in how much you're supposed to be growing and how much you're supposed to be doing. And I find that, you know, it's not impossible at all to do from Portugal, but it's it's easy to, you know, you're here, Portugal is a great place. The community is great, the weather is great, and it's easy to be like, oh, things are great, right? But you have to always think that you're competing at a global level. And, you know, like there's there's five other companies that are trying to do the same as you working. You know, you have to make sure you're the one that's working the hardest because that, that will matter. Yeah. And in Portugal, we've been very fortunate in a way not to have a local market because it forces companies like yours yes. to actually go global from day one, right? Yes. But now global is difficult and things are getting tough on an economic from an economic point of view. How are you preparing yourself and, and what would you sort of recommend to other founders in terms of you know, the potentially tough times that we are starting to see uh, presently and, and, and ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think long-term, you know, Paul Graham said the best way uh, to, to have a great startup is to build a great business. So, you know, it's, I, I think it, it is sometimes uh, easy to kind of get into the startup mode and say like, forget that you're, trying, you're building something that should have real value to people in the world, right? Like that should solve a problem that people are willing to pay, etc. And sometimes it's very needed to say, look, let's not worry about that right now. Let's worry about solving something, right? Social networks, uh, uh, network effect, etc. But we are in this in a phase right now where um, the you know, given the, the current economic climate, where there's more attention to are you actually generating revenue? Are you profitable, right? And so I think fortunately, so one our last raise was pre-COVID, so we were in a way. Lucky that we didn't raise at ridiculous valuations during COVID, so we don't have that issue. Some startups that did are going to face uh, that as an issue, and and also uh, even for example our acquisition. So acquiring LSP, LSPs are profitable companies, right? So we're actually fairly close to being profitable. We have a you know a very uh, reasonable and and achievable path to being profitable, uh, and so that that is a it's, a it's a it's a good moment right now. It's really good to to be that. We also have a a very ambitious and strong strategy for inorganic and organic growth that we believe we can execute. Uh, but ultimately, you know, like the, the, the only thing you can do is build something that people want, right? And, and to do that in a way that is economically viable. Um, I think uh, you're seeing a lot of companies uh, starting to think about you know, reducing workforce or doing it. Uh, that's not our case right now. Um, we don't have plans for that. I think obviously you have to be extra careful on hiring and making sure that you're hiring people that that can provide any value. Uh, but I also feel that um, even the downturns, I mean, everything has been accelerating in the world, right? And so uh, information spreads so much faster, you know, news about anything. And the way that the markets react in, on aggregate seems to be faster than before. Yeah. 
So I think even though sometimes there's some downside to that, which is you know a sharp turn on the negative that happens super quick. But it could be the upturn could be. Super but I think the upturn is going to be quicker as well. So let's hope so. Let's see what happens at the end of the summer. Okay, Vash, great to see you. Likewise, it's a pleasure, Stefan. Hope to keep on supporting you anytime, and thank you for your support. Thank you.